really big year. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going to be happening. Uh, I know we've spoken about some of the, the things that are kind of giving us a little bit of anxiety, like general elections and, and things like that, and all those things that are, are causing us to be a little bit un, uncertain about a number of things. But there are a number of other events this year which some of us are also anticipating. Uh, you know, there's a lot of anticipation with it, and it's also probably causing a bit of anxiety, if, just depending you know, how invested you are in it. Is there's two World Cups this year. Hey? There's a Cricket World Cup, and there is a Rugby World Cup this year, right? For us uh, and as South Africans, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. And I was thinking about this, you know, in the lead up to this morning, uh, when there is a World Cup year, teams and players are chasing uh, a, a very unique and, and rare status. Because uh, when it comes to these kinds of events, there's something that happens, for the team that wins the final of a World Cup, right, they get labeled, they, they, they get a status, right, the status of world champions. And there's something amazing about the status of world champions. It's because in the period between World Cups, you cannot lose that status. It's an amazing thing. You know, players and teams will chase that and spend uh, hours and hours and hours, their whole careers, trying to reach the pinnacle of being, I am a world champion. And while they have that, they don't lose that. It's amazing because the team can win the final, they get the trophy, and then for every other game in the cycle to the next World Cup, it's the world champions, and hopefully for the next four years will be the world champions South Africa, are playing, and they could lose that game. They could get a pasting. They don't lose the status of world champions. In fact, they could win the final and lose every single game for four years. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But they would keep the status of world champion. It's an amazing thing. Just that you could, you could do so badly. But if you have that, you can't lose it. Unique thing. Which leads me to, you know, kind of got a once-off uh, sermon to kick things off this year. And this is something, as a, as a pastor, that is maybe my biggest bugbear when it comes to uh, the Christian life. It's how many of us struggle with our status. The, if I have to think of the amount of counseling that I've done over the years, what is at the kind of the top of uh, kind of that list. It's people who are struggling with, am I saved still? You know, Craig, I did this and, and, and I don't think I'm saved anymore. Am I still a Christian? You know, but how can God love me after what's just happened in my life? Or you, you, there's, there's this seems to be uh, this journey, this struggle that people go through in their walk with the Lord. We're going, today I feel like I'm a believer. You know, maybe it's been a good season for you. Uh, you've been getting the right amount of sleep. Uh, so you are able to get up with your alarm and uh, you're able to kind of read more than just a, a colorful picture and half a verse on your phone. You, you know, you're actually like reading scripture. Uh, you're finding time to pray. You know, you're feeling, oh, this is a good time in my life. I'm really feeling like a believer. Things are going well. Uh, so oh, God loves me. I love God. Yes, I'm a Christian. Things are just going really, really well. We've had seasons like this in our lives, but then, you know, something happens. 
And it could be a number of things. For example, you were praying for a promotion, the promotion didn't happen, you're disappointed, so you're angry at God. Now you don't feel like you're a Christian. You know, God, what did I do wrong? You know, don't you love me, God, that this didn't happen, but I was really trusting you for this, I really needed this. And so because that happened, now all of a sudden you struggle to engage with the Lord. So the Bible stays closed for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, sometimes a couple of months. Depending on the disappointments, sometimes even a couple of years, you struggle to engage with God and you feel the disconnect because there's kind of been some disappointments. And so you're going like, does God love me? Doesn't he love me? Am I a believer? Am I not a believer? This, this isn't how kind of was supposed to work out and I'm battling with this disappointment from God. Sometimes it's from our side. Things are going really, really well. We've been experiencing victory over some sin issues in our lives and all of a sudden, we kind of go back into some patterns where we've experienced a lot of breakthrough and victory in our lives over the years. And now we're going, you know, I was going so well. I made a promise this year with God. One of my New Year's resolutions is I'll not do this. You know, 3rd of January, oh my word, I've blown it with you, God. You know, and uh, we then go, I've sinned. So how long do I have to wait before I can kind of pray to God again? Because I made this promise, you know, God, I'm not gonna sin in this area of my life and I've already blown it. So... You know, we feel that we've, because we've blown it, okay, I must kind of wait till God's anger cools off. I must kind of, you know, just give him the space that he needs while I kind of deal with this and kind of get back into behaving like I should as a Christian. So let me kind of uh, be really good in this area and, and, and be obedient. And okay, now I've been holy for maybe a week, two weeks. I'm not gonna ask God for something because I'm good enough and I've behaved myself and hopefully his anger's cooled off. And maybe that doesn't quite fit you, but maybe some of that does. Because so often we behave as believers based on how we feel and how we think God feels towards us. And so many Christians, so many of us are not enjoying uh, the relationship that God wants with us because we view it through how we feel. Okay, well, I didn't get this, so God's disappointed. Uh, or I'm disappointed with God, and so, you know, we gotta kind of work that one through, and over time, we kind of pick things up again. Or I've blown with God, and so I must wait and wait, and, you, you know, is God gonna answer this? And the status of, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? It's a big deal. And it shapes so much of our engagement with the Lord. And so my hope is in, in the bit of time that we have this morning is you're gonna be encouraged to think very differently about how you continually engage with God. See, because I, I, I see it as this like baseline that scripture gives descriptions of who we are and what we are when we come to faith with Christ. It talks about things like you were an enemy, now you're a son. And ladies, when we say son, it's collective. We also understand, yes, you're a daughter. So if I just use that word son, it's a, a gender inclusive term for all of us this morning. But it talks about from enemies to son, then co-heir with Jesus, justified so you've never sinned. There's numbers of, of descriptions that come with uh, being a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. That scripture kind of speaks to. And often what I think of do you wanna get that uh, first slide up there, Nick? There's, there's one with a kind of a, a, an act, that, that one. All right, so I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But this is kind of this baseline. And, and I think we've got it so wrong. So we see the words in scripture, son, 
co-heir, child of God. We get to call him like Abba Father. I'll get to some of that stuff in a minute. But all these wonderful terms. But we think that that's like the high water mark. So we see ourselves as kind of under the line, trying to achieve and feel all the words that the New Testament describes of those who are believers. So, yo, I, I, I've been so good, like stuff's been going so well for so many years. Now I'm starting to feel like a son. Now I'm starting to feel like a child. Now, now I'm starting to see, you know, what Scripture's talking about. And so we're trying to get to that line. You know, I've been working really hard. I'm, I'm approaching that line, approaching that line. And then something happens, a disappointment, either you perceive like God did something that you didn't do what you wanted or you've blown it. And so you drop like right down again. Oh, now I've got to work hard to get back to that line, which is son, co-heir, just like all those things that they talk about. But it's actually the inverse. And so uh, just a, a bit of a story, this incredible analogy. So because I'm not very good at drawing, I didn't have a picture, that's that angled line is a mountain. Okay, just picture that's a mountain. And uh, being a youth pastor uh, for a large season of my life, uh, I did a number of events with teenagers. And one particular event was a hike up Lion's Head in Cape Town. And if you've had the privilege of being in Cape Town and doing that Lion's Head hike, you know it's not a very long hike. Most people can do it uh, within a few hours. It's nice and steep. Uh, you start at the bottom, you wind your way up to the top, and then you get this amazing, amazing view. This particular hike, uh, I did the most walking out of everybody in the group, and I never reached the top. So basically, we're walking, and uh, we're about 45 minutes up into the hike, and one uh, a young girl in the party goes, oh, Craig, I left my backpack down in the car. Okay, so we've gone so far up the mountain, and then we turn and we head all the way back down. And uh, then we raced quite hard to try and catch up. And uh, then we were met with another person and another leader going, we've also forgot something in the car. So back down the mountain to the car. And uh, then we start heading the way back up and someone had fallen and grazed their knee quite badly. And then we realized we had left the first aid kits in the car. So we had reached another point up on the mountain and down we went. And uh, then uh, by the time we had sorted that out, the main party had reached the top, enjoyed their little snacks and view and had to start making them way back, but someone had kind of hurt themselves further away, so we went a little bit, you know, and, and I'd hiked the whole time, and I'd done the most walking, but never reached the top. And there's the sense with so many of us as believers, all this effort, all this praying, all this reading, all this striving, all of the cycle of kind of victory, then defeat, and victory, and then defeat, and kind of mastering one area of sin, and then all of a sudden, there's this another area that kind of pops up in my life, and it's a sense of going like, you know, I get so far up the mountain, and then just everything crashes, and I go all the way back down to the very bottom, and then I've got to start the slog up again, and then, I, and then something else happens, and I, and I go back down the mountain, and then I can never reach the top, because we miss the fact that when we do come to faith in Christ, all of the stuff that we read in the New Testament of being an enemy to a son, becoming a co-heir with Christ and the inheritance that is his, to be calling, being called a child of God, uh, being given the title of, of justified, that it's, uh, our, our sinful nature is taken away, we've been given the righteousness of Christ, that then becomes our baseline. And so, if you can just go with me on my elaborate drawing here, 
is that we feel like we can never reach what we called in Christ. And so we always fall back down, trying to reach that falling back down again. But the opposite is actually what has happened, is that that becomes our baseline and everything else happens above that. So I start today, this morning I woke up. Regardless of what happened yesterday, I woke up this morning as a child of God. I woke up this morning a co-heir with Christ. I woke up justified in my sin. So it doesn't matter what happens, that if I'm enjoying a season with Christ and then something happens and I have a disappointment, a sin disappointment or something happened with the Lord that didn't quite work out that I was hoping for and I, and I go backwards, I never go back down to the, the parking lot of the mountain. I go back down to the baseline of a co-heir with Christ. That is my status. As a believer, my status permanently given to me by Jesus is a child of God. A son adopted, co-heir with Christ. Just as though I'd never sinned, uh, the righteousness of Christ given to me by what he did on the cross. That, that's kind of my base operating platform as a believer. That any backwards movement in my life is backwards to the starting place of a child of God, uh, an adopted son, a co-heir with Christ, just as though I'd never sinned. Isn't that just an amazing thought. See, so many people struggle with, you know, what happens if I, I mean, one of the, there's two questions that I get asked a lot is what happened to dinosaurs? And if I sin just before I die, do I go to heaven or hell? And there's this, this thing amongst us by going like, we're never, ever quite sure. You know, we'll get to like 80%, 90% sure, but everybody still kind of asks the question, you know, but, but like what happens if like right before I die, I sin and I haven't had a chance to repent? Like, do I go to heaven or do I go to hell? And there's this, this thing in us that there's this hanging doubts and we go through seasons that's like, like can, I, can I actually lose what Jesus has done? Can I lose it? Is there a point where I can actually roll all the way back down? And the answer is no. That's quite impossible. And I'm gonna, gonna take us through some scripture with us this morning and, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter six. And this is a big deal for me because the enemy wants us to be living in a place of defeat. And, and, and when there's doubt and uncertainty, we're never going to be engaging in the full life that Jesus has for us. And I'm tired of, of people struggling with that. And for me, at the start of 2019, it's that we really understand our status and that we live in that status and we own that status. And that status defines how we engage with people, how we engage with the Lord, how we engage with our ministries, how we engage with our community. All right, so, okay, Hebrews chapter six. And uh, just to understand, it would be very good for you to uh, sit down and read the whole of Hebrews in one go. Uh, Hebrews is a, it's a really, really good book of the Bible. I've been going through it in my own uh, devotions and, and quiet times at the moment. Uh, but if you know the book of Hebrews, some people take passages out and kind of just sit there. You need to go through the whole thing in one go, just as a, as a fun exercise. Uh, it's quite eye-opening, so it won't take you too long. Uh, sit down, read the whole of Hebrews might have to do it a few times, but I'm taking out a passage that's kind of coming at the end of a longer narrative that we just don't have the, the time to deal with. 
So it would be good for you to read that because what Paul, uh, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, um, we think it might be him, uh, there is no um, certainty as to who wrote it. But what the author is doing is really trying to help a group of people who actually are wrestling through this very question. And this is kind of the back end and his closing arguments to uh, the certainty of salvation. And so we're picking up chapter six, verse 13. Right, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by something greater than themselves and the oath confirms what was said and puts an end to all arguments. And because God wanted to make sure uh, wanted, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, uh, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right, so there's some interesting stuff that is happening there. And this is important because this is kind of the closing arguments to understanding uh, how we can have this confidence as to we can be secure in our status as believers. And so a couple things. First one there is the promise to Abraham. And I love uh, that the author goes there. Uh, because God makes a promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, make a note there. Genesis 12, one to three. I'm not gonna read it. Uh, that is the whole kind of history of the Bible summed up in three verses. Uh, God makes a promise to Abraham. Uh, there are kind of three kind of waves to that promise. Uh, God says to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. You're gonna have a descendant. Your descendant's gonna become a great nation. And then all peoples on the earth are gonna be blessed by you. Because Abraham trusts God, God calls him, he says, leave your family, come follow me. Abraham does that. He believes God, he trusts God. He's, uh, because of his faith, he's given and accredited him as righteousness. He's saved by his faith. And in that act of obedience, God says this, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless your family. You're gonna become a great nation. That nation's gonna be blessed. All peoples of the earth are gonna be blessed. We've seen that uh, through history. He had a son, Isaac. He then becomes a nation that is the nation of Israel. And we've seen over the last few months just how much God kept uh, his relationship with the nation of Israel, right? How many times did they try and blow that relationship? In fact, they blew it for thousands of years. They tried to do everything they possibly could to end their relationship with God, and it never happened. And the very reason it never happened was because God made a promise. God said to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless your descendants, I'm gonna bless the nation they're going to become and I'm gonna bless all peoples uh, on the earth because of you. And that nation we've seen throughout the whole of the Old Testament, we have it kind of as a witness testifying to the unchangeable nature of God. When he makes a promise, he does not break it. In fact, he could never disown himself with the promise that he made to the descendants of Abraham. And then there's a third kind of wave to that promise, which is all people on the earth are gonna be blessed through you. And that led to Jesus. 
And one of the very reasons that we can have so much surety in our, in our status as those of us who've surrendered uh, to Jesus is because the unchangeable nature and promise that God made. He kept his promise to Abraham's family, to the nation they became, and then everyone else who believes in Jesus, that same promise and oath that God made extends to us, now just through the covenant of Jesus. It's an incredible thing. When God makes the promise with Abraham, uh, you might have heard me speak about this before. It's a very unique promise. It was called a covenant. It was a blood covenant. You know when it says that people swear by oaths greater than themselves? We've all done that before, right? Growing up, it was a, a promise, and then it was a pinky promise, and then maybe you spat in your hand, and the other person spat, and you shook with a spat hand. Maybe you pricked uh, your finger, and there was a bit of a blood promise that was made. Uh, you know, we've done things like that, where we've, you, you know, try to, you know, make the seriousness of the deal uh, all that more uh, you know, severe by adding something to the agreement. Now we have lawyers and contracts and, and things like that, but we understand uh, the seriousness of agreement and what we do to that. For God and Abraham, it was a bull that was cut in half and was spread apart and they walked through the bull and, and that was how a covenant was made. But with God and Abraham, uh, the, the way that it worked was God put Abraham to sleep and God walked through on his behalf and he walked through on Abraham's behalf. And, and as we know, the meaning of that is going, uh, Abraham, if I fail you, my blood will be spilt. And because he walked through on Abraham's behalf, he said, Abraham, if you fail me, my blood is going to be spilt. He made the oath and the covenants unbreakable because God took it upon himself and swore upon himself. And God cannot lie, he cannot change, his nature is faultless and perfect. And so what we see as kind of the, the ending of this kind of long kind of building to, you know, how can you be sure about your status? It's not based upon you. It's based upon God. And because he made a promise, and there was kind of three stages to that promise, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. He came through in that promise, Abraham had a son. And then he said, I'm gonna bless your descendants. There's a whole nation. And God blessed them. And no matter what they did, they could never end the relation. God said, I am your God. You'll always be my people. Not once did we ever see God forsake the people that he made a promise with. It never happened. And so we have that as further proof to the character of God and the unchanging nature of him that he doesn't forsake those he has made a promise to. And that then extends into Jesus Christ that if we have surrendered our lives to him and said, Jesus, I trust you with my salvation, that promise extends to us. And this is what the author does, is he goes to Jesus because right at the end of that passage in Hebrews, if you wanna stay in those last few verses, this is our hope. From verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus entered on our behalf. There's some beautiful imagery here that is very deliberate. This book was written, or this letter was written to a largely uh, Jewish community who had come to faith in Jesus. So they were steeped in kind of temple tradition and temple behavior. And when they talks about being, uh, going into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, uh, what had happened for God's people was they set up the temple and that's when you went to go and make uh, offerings and sacrifices on behalf of your sin. So you were required to go and offer up an animal or, or something on behalf of the sin that you've made in forgiveness and repentance. And God would accept the sacrifice and the offering on your behalf. 
But inside the temple, there was a place called the inner sanctuary. There was huge curtains that separated it. And that was called the inner sanctuary or the holy of holies. And in there was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a vessel holding the Ten Commandments. And there were some very important things around there. On there was this thing called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go into that inner sanctuary and he would take some blood and he would pour it out onto the mercy seat as an offering for sin for the whole people. And that was done once a year on the Day of Atonement and a very symbolic, important time in the nation of Israel. Uh, quite a big deal. He had to go in with rope tied around one leg and bells around the other. Because if he entered into that space with unconfessed and undealt with sin in his life, going into the presence of the Lord, he would drop down dead. Guys on the other side of the curtain would hear the bells not uh, kind of rustling anymore. They'd know their high priest died. They'd use the rope, they'd drag him out because they couldn't go in there. They'd need to appoint a new high priest and kind of go through the whole process again. It was a very serious thing. And so understanding that that's what the high priest had to do once a year and making an offering for all people because of their sin Again, knowing why we can be so secure in our status as believers is because our forerunner, Jesus, went in there on our behalf. No more do we need to offer up those sacrifices and have to repeatedly make an offering for sin because Jesus did that once and for all with finality as his offering on the cross in our place for our sin. Such a significant thing happened. The moment Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished that very curtain that separated the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, in a sanctuary from everywhere else was torn top to bottom. There's a miracle that happened going, it is done, right? You can engage into my presence, every single one of you who come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing, amazing thing that's happening. This is why I love this so much. We have this hope and anchor for our soul, firm and secure. The imagery in this, in this passage is wonderful, right? So if you've ever been on a boat and you've dropped anchor, isn't an anchor such a simple device, but do such a unique job? It keeps a boat locked in one place, no matter what the currents or sea conditions are around it. The boat doesn't move because of the anchor, right? The current can come and it'll push the boat. The boat will kind of go in its little, but the anchor keeps it in the spot. It doesn't move. And we have this hope, an anchor for our soul, firm and secure, because our forerunner Jesus entered where we could never go on our behalf and did the work of a high priest, dealing with the sin of the people once and for all with finality at the back end of a promise made to Abraham that has uh, seen uh, it not being broken uh, by God since uh, he made that promise and he will continue doing that. This is why we can stand here and go, for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have surrendered and gone, Jesus, save me, I cannot save myself, and have received everything that the New Testament speaks about, how being you were an enemy, you're now an adopted son, a co-heir with Christ, given his righteousness, uh, the deposit of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our salvation. We can talk about this with this hope and security. Uh, hope for a believer is a weird word, right? Because not other people or, or people outside of the faith, hope kind of doesn't have the same uh, security and, and finality that we have when we say our hope is in Jesus. And so we have this baseline. That's what we operate from. And that's how we know we can operate out of kind of our, our base of I'm a son, 
adopted, co-heir with Christ, justified, have his righteousness, given me the Holy Spirit. He's gifted me for work in the ministry. And I, I, when it's kind of like go reset back to zero, that's the reset. Isn't that just an incredible encouragement for us? That you could blow it. And what you blow it back to is an adopted son, co-heir with Christ, justified, given his righteousness, still having the Holy Spirit, still being used and deployed for ministry. That you can never blow it back past down that point. So just for me, such an incredible truth. Paul writes in Romans chapter eight, from verse 14. It says, for those of us who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And in Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Again, this is kind of our baseline. And I love this because that, that word, Abba, Father, it's, an, it's a term of endearment. It's almost like dad. And there's that love and intimacy that comes with that relationship. And I, and I love to speak about this because I think my children have done more for me uh, in understanding my relationship with God than anything else that I've read or experienced. Because those of us who parents, we know that even though our children uh, disappoint us or have done something naughty that requires, you, you know, some kind of intervention or some discipline, not ever does it mean you're no longer a son. In, in my house, it's impossible. Uh, you know, Aaron could do something and it's gone, okay, Aaron, I, I need to now discipline you. There's some consequences uh, for that action. The consequence is never, Aaron, you're no longer my son. Uh, just so you know, the consequence for this action is you can no longer call me dad because our relationship is over. How much security does he have that that would never, ever happen to him? It doesn't matter what he does. Nothing can change the relationship that I am his dad and he is my son. We know that relationships get strained. We know there are some very difficult relationships between fathers and sons, even in this room, but it doesn't change the status. The relationship might be strained, but the status is still father and son. That can never change. And I think that's why God uses that language because I think it reinforces something in us. There is nothing Aaron can do to end the relationship of son. It is impossible. And because of the work of Jesus, and the promise of God, nothing can change the relationship. When I surrender myself to Christ and say, save me. When I move from dead in my sin to adopted son, nothing changes that because it's not on me. It's not on me. I am fickle. If it was up to me, I would have blown it three days into the relationship. If I had a better memory, I'd probably blew it the afternoon. I stepped into that relationship and many of you can agree with that. But because it's not up to me, as it is never up to Aaron, I'm never going to be in a position where God says to me, Craig, you are no longer my son. We're done. It'll never, ever happen because it's not based on me. It's based on him. 
You know what I love about my children when it comes to kind of disappointments and discipline? I think the thing I love so much is that they recover so quickly. You know, they recover fast. You know, Edie the other day asked me for chocolates for breakfast. And I said no. And she was devastated. Let me tell you, she was absolutely devastated. There were huge tears. In fact, uh, she was face down on the floor, uh, bawling her eyes out because I would not give her chocolate for breakfast. We worked it through, and in a few short uh, moments later, we were laughing and playing. And in fact, uh, as three-year-olds are prone to do, uh, she shouted out, Dad, I don't love you anymore. And uh, I don't kind of get upset with those words because, as I've shared with you, she is a three-nager. But uh, shortly after that, we had worked it through. She was eating oats, and uh, she kind of came up to me, and she said, Dad, I do love you. And you know, the recovery time from a disappointment is so fast with children. And I think there's so much to kind of learn from that relationship because, you know, we don't behave like that, but I love how they do. They are so engaged in that father-son kind of father-daughter relationship, even when there's discipline, even when there's disappointments. They recover so quickly back to the status of, of dad. You know, just, just received a timeout. Hey, dad, can we go play? Yes, of course. You know, almost immediately there's recovery and engaging in the fullness of relationship. It's so important for us to be in that same space. And I wanna end with a final passage Coming out of 1 Timothy uh, chapter one, it's not gonna come up onto the screen. Uh, I just want you to hear the words, but write it down, 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. And I love this because most of the New Testament was written uh, by a guy by the name of Paul. And uh, he was a missionary, kind of just took the gospel uh, to the nations, and he really experienced a lot from God. And I think one of the things that kept him going for it maybe about 30, 35 years of him on the front line of taking the gospel to people who had never heard it. Ended up being beheaded and killed for his faith, uh, persecuted. He was left for dead a number of times, spent years of his life in prison. He really experienced a number of hardships. And I think what got him through that at the intensity that he did was his sonship. His baseline, knowing what he operated from and what his starting point always was in his faith, his status as a son. And he writes this to a young uh, up-and-coming pastor, Timothy. And he writes this letter to him, very personal. And, and, and this is kind of one bit out of it. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I once uh, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, uh, the only God, be honor, glory, and glory forever and ever, amen. I love what he's saying here because he's encouraging this young guy out of his own walk with the Lord. 
He says, you wanna know something? I was the worst of sinners. Now, some of us can really identify with that because he lists what he was, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, overseeing people even being killed for believing in Jesus. That was his past. And, and so many of us, we've got a past. But the difference is we stay in our past and often kind of go back into what that was for our lives. And we kind of get hung up back in that space. But Paul doesn't. He recognizes his past, but he realizes the mercy and grace and forgiveness he received in Christ, that he would, go, that he would accept me and then use me and pour out his grace, love, and mercy on me. So here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. I was the worst, or Christ came to die, uh, and came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He doesn't stay there. His life was not defined by what he did in the past, but how he lived each day in the mission that God had called him to. He lived out of the space of what he had received in Christ, everything that he had received in coming to faith in him, and that's what he operated from. We know that he had struggles. He writes elsewhere, I kind of do the things I don't wanna do and don't do the things I wanna do. There were times where he struggled. You know, he cried out, I'm weak, God, but you are strong. But never defined by things of failure, but living in the encouragements that comes from being so secure in our relationship with Jesus. And I wanna end this morning. And we're kind of just wrapping this all up and saying, you are going to sin this year, unfortunately. Please keep a very short account with God. You can't blow it past what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. So you can recover quickly. Don't view God through how you feel. Because there's days where we're gonna feel that he doesn't love us. And that is a very wrong way to approach God. That's an incorrect way to approach him. Approach him with the lens of he loves me. I know the whole thing of, of fathers and many people struggle to see God as a father because of their own relationship that they have had with the father. But we've got to kind of shift past that and go, no, God's not like my earthly father. My earthly father should have been like my heavenly father and kind of go at that way because we have this perfect heavenly father who loves us no matter what, who never forsakes us, never leaves us. And we can recover quickly into that relationship that if it is tough for you to push in deeper into that relationship with your father, to operate more out of your status as a son and a daughter and co-heir with Christ than you never have before. Really want you to embrace and own the title child of God. That nothing can remove that. You know, I kind of was thinking of like a, a laminated whiteboard or laminated piece that you scribble on and scribble on and scribble on and scribble on. And when it's all wiped clear, what you cannot wipe clear is child of God, adopted son, co-heir with Christ, can't be removed. And so we operate out of that. For those of us who believe in Jesus, that is our baseline, our operating platform. And whatever 2019 throws at us and whatever we kind of struggle with and wrestle through, that we're doing it from that place, not anything else. 
And anything else you believe or the enemy wants to throw at you is not true. That if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's where you operate from. I want you to embrace that and engage with that and live in that and thrive in that. That you can pick up every single day and go, thank you, Jesus. And engage fully as a son. Engage fully as a daughter. Not worrying about, oh, does God love me? He will love you always. Always. I mean, I love where it says, new are his mercies for us every single day. Where sin abounds, grace abounds, even more so. Obviously, it doesn't give us license to go crazy this year and go, yes, I can do whatever I want, you know, because God's gonna love me and forgive me. That's missing the point completely. And uh, the opposite should be true. Considering the amount of grace and considering the love and what we have in Christ pushes us even more into obedience and to strive to live a life that honors Christ in every single way. Right, I'm gonna pray for us. And again, my prayer is this, that you would get sonship that you would realize everything you have in Christ, your status, and that that would be the place that you operate from and you just go from there upwards uh, because that is what we have in Christ. Jesus, our forerunner, the one who entered into the place where we could never go. Jesus, thank you. If it wasn't for that, I have no hope. But because of that, I have a hope that is firm and secure. In fact, it's an anchor for my soul And nothing can shake me because of the promise that you made and what I have in you, Jesus Christ. And I wanna thank you for that. Jesus, I wanna pray for everyone this morning that is wrestling and struggling with their status before you. That they're wrestling with the fact that, uh, you know, it's kind of a guessing game. God, do you love me today? Don't you love me today? God, I pray that you would overwhelm them with your love that every single one of us would know the love that is secure, that has saved us and calls us sons and daughters, co-heirs with us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would testify to our spirits that we are children of God, that we are your children, that when we are having moments of doubt, Holy Spirit, you would well up within us, that our spirits would know without a shadow of a doubt that we are your children. And that what would define our lives as believers is that security, that status that cannot be taken away, not by anything, because it's given upon your promise and you promised upon yourself and that cannot be broken. What security, what hope, what confidence to take forward in my faith and relationship with you that I, I don't have this distant relationship with you. It's an intimate one that you've told me to call you dad. I don't have fear of that relationship, but intimacy. Jesus, won't you help us with that this year? In your holy name, amen.